This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann. With me today, once again returning to the show, we, although we love all of our guests, maybe our favorite guests, Curtis Harris of Pro Hoops History. Curtis, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's glad to be back where you're the favorite guest. So, always a pleasure to be on. So, you have been working for the Philadelphia 76ers on a history project called Spirit of the Champion commemorating the 50th anniversary of the 1967 team that won 68 games and is on the short list of greatest teams in pro basketball history. Uh, how did you get connected with it, and and what have you been doing so far? Yeah, uh, so basically, um, kind of just fell into my lap. Uh, I didn't contact anybody. Um, so Charlie Widos, who's a, kind of a social media director uh, for the Sixers, uh, he used to write uh, one of the blogs for True Hoop Network back in the day. And, you know, I worked at or wrote for Hardware Proxism as well. So that was part of True Hoop Network back at that time. And uh, we just kind of met each other um, at one of the Sloan conferences. And so obviously we follow each other on Twitter and stuff. Um, but, yeah, he knows my work. So when the 50th anniversary for the Sixers was coming up and uh, he's moved on to the Sixers now and he works for them, uh, he got in touch with me and said or asked if I wanted to be a part of the project. And I was like, you know. Obviously, yeah, um, something pretty awesome to be a part of the 50th anniversary for, as you said, you know, one of the short list of best teams in NBA history. Uh, so, yeah, kind of, as I said, it just kind of fell into my lap. This is like uh, maybe early, mid-September. He got in touch with me about it uh, and really started working on it in early October. So, uh, yeah, it's been pretty, been pretty fun uh, since then. So you, you know, what have you been able to kind of do for it? Or, you know, you obviously done some podcasts, you've written some articles, you, yeah. you've, you've met several of the players from the team. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've written, let's see, I think five articles right now. Uh, and one actually just published this week is on Alex Hannum, uh, the coach of the team. So that, I thought that was really important to get a, something on him, uh, obviously, since he passed away uh, several years ago. Uh, but I got an article on him and stuff on the team generally. Uh, in terms of articles, and then also, uh, yeah, did some podcasts. I've talked to Wally Jones, and that podcast is posted. Uh, and Dave Gamby, I have that interview done, but uh, just need to get that sent off and post it up on the website. Uh, and hopefully, in the next couple of months, I get some other guys um, on podcasts. Uh, but also, uh, went to Philadelphia and actually spoke with uh, all the surviving members of the team except for Luke Jackson and Bob Weiss. So that was seven of the nine guys were there. So uh, we did like a sit down interview with all seven of them. And uh, that should be posted sometime this spring. But it was really exciting to sit down with all those guys and just talk to them for about an hour and 15, 20 minutes, just about, um, yeah, you know, just being on the team and playing together and then, you know, being together 50 years later. That was a really cool experience. Yeah, I'm, I'll be excited, of course, to when that finally comes out to be able to uh, see that. So I, I think before you, you did this project, I saw an interview that you did that you called this team probably your favorite um, yeah. team. W what about them makes them your favorite team? Yeah, so that's what made this all hilarious uh, when Charlie got in touch with me uh, back in September. Because uh, in late August, uh, Sports Biblio uh, got in contact with me. They just wanted to, like, you know talk to a sports historian and, you know, just ask him some general questions about what books you read and all that and other things up your alley. And yeah, like, uh, Wendy Parker, who runs it, uh, just asked me like, you know, what's your favorite basketball team? And I was like, it's the 67 Sixers. I just find them so, uh, interesting from so many different angles. Um, you kind of hinted at it already where they might be considered the end of an era or the beginning of an era, definitely a transition. Uh, but also, you know, the Wilt Russell uh, rivalry comes into play, but also the Philadelphia Boston rivalry. Uh, then Alex Hannum's uh, his kind of 
not quite rivalry, but, you know, his kind of comparison with Red Auerbach because Hanum's the only coach to beat Auerbach in a playoff series. Uh, even though Russell was the coach in 67, but still he had like Hanum going up against his old nemesis, the Boston Celtics. Um, and just all the different kinds of players. Like uh, some of the guys were leftovers, you can say, from the Syracuse Nationals. Uh, so that kind of is also a weird angle where like, you have this team that used to be a rival of the old Philadelphia Warriors, but now becomes the Philadelphia 76ers. So it, it just had just so many different, um, you know, narratives, I guess you can say, uh, all pulling and all pulling together in this one season. So I, I find it a pretty exciting team from those kind of vantage points. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, you know, this is this team had been the Syracuse Nationals. They moved to Philadelphia before the 64 season. That was a year after the Philadelphia Warriors left for San Francisco. So Wilt had been on the Warriors. Um, and then when they moved to San Francisco in 65, he eventually was traded back to the new Philadelphia team. Yep. Before that, you know, the... Um, you know, the, the Philadelphia had not necessarily embraced the 76ers that much. They still, you know, they had, um, they had Hal Greer and Chet Walker and a few of the other guys who had been Nationals. And the Nationals had been a pretty fierce rival with the uh, Warriors. Um, and, you know, obviously it was it was a little bit difficult to have this rival team move here and then suddenly expect the fans to embrace them. Yeah, that's, that's actually a big thing uh, that the guys talked about, uh, the guys from the team. Um, and also, um, I spoke with Sonny Hill, uh, who didn't play for the Sixers, but he's like a local basketball legend in Philadelphia. Uh, so I spoke with him because he was close to a lot of guys on the team as well. And uh, he talked about it, just how uh, Philadelphia basketball fans were generally uh, kind of standoffish. And not even the fans so much. The fans were standoffish, but even the media, they say it seemed to be even more so than the fans. Um where they, where they really didn't want to cover the 76ers necessarily. Uh, so it took a couple of years for the, the old Nationals to really kind of ingratiate themselves, become the 76ers. Um, and the fact that they had a lot of local guys on the team too, like Matt Gukas, uh, Will Chamberlain, uh, who else? Wally Jones, uh, Bill Melchioni. Those were all guys that grew up in the Philadelphia area. So they were either went to, also went to college there too. So that kind of helped ingratiate the team too over time. Uh, but yeah, if you definitely listen to uh, my interview with uh, Sonny Hill that's on the website, uh, he talks a lot about how um, how kind of the uh, direct, not even rec league, uh, kind of the pro-am, pro-professional amateur league during the summertime, the Baker League, that also really helped out because like the 76ers players would actually play with like neighborhood teams in this league. So like one neighborhood team might have Chet Walker and Billy Cunningham and another team might have Wally Jones. And then they did with like play with the local players and that kind of helped spread them uh, through the city and help the fans of the city and the media uh, really appreciate the 76ers uh, by 1967. So that was that was, a, that was a really cool story that you really you're not going to get this day day and age in the NBA. Sure, and, yeah, and, and you know Philly, the Warriors had a tradition of yeah. um, bringing in a lot of players who were from Philadelphia. I mean, those Warriors teams were heavily you know Philadelphia players oh, yeah. as, as well, and you know, and, and this the city has a you know a, a deep history you know that some of that you talked about of uh, you know great basketball play, whether it's college, whether it's pro am, whether it was you know in the barnstorming days before the uh, the NBA really you know came to prominence yeah yeah and i wrote an article yeah talking about just the long uh, tradition of basketball in philadelphia um so you know going back i mean heck like the if you kind of consider like the greater philadelphia area like the lower uh delaware river valley uh like that was one of the the big hotbeds so actually the birthplace of professional basketball really uh the first uh professional basketball team at least recorded professional basketball team was in trenton new jersey so just up the river from philly uh, and by 1900, the first professional basketball league was centered around Philadelphia. So, yeah, like teams in Camden, Trenton, Philly and uh, southern New Jersey, they were all playing each other. So uh, that kind of went into the barnstorming days with the, you know, the the SFAS, the you know, South Philadelphia Hebrew Association. And that directly led into the, you know, the Philadelphia Warriors because Eddie Gottlieb founded the uh, SFAS. Or at least he played for the SFAS. I don't know if he founded the SFAS, but he was a part of the SFAS. And they became like the owner of the SFAS. And then... Um, founded the Warriors and then of course he played a big role in getting the 76ers moving to Philadelphia to replace the Warriors after a while uh, so you can kind of when you read that article you can really kind of trace uh, you know the 76ers and 67 you kind of trace back the basketball history of the city going all the way back to the 1890s uh, so yeah just a really rich city that's another reason why I love the 67 you kind of just see the the long line the long lineage uh, of basketball in Philadelphia uh, looking at that squad yeah, and it's probably the last team where, because you know, this is right at the end of territorial picks, 
And, um, you know, where the NBA is focusing on getting, you know, hometown players in in their areas when possible. And this is probably the last team where that, um, you know, the the local team with with any sort of major um, presence of local players on, you know, the local team uh, winning a championship. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, I'm looking at I think maybe a third or maybe even a quarter. Yeah, maybe a third of the roster was from Philadelphia or southeast Pennsylvania. So, um, yeah, let's see. Bob Weiss, Melchione, Wally Jones, Matt Gukas, uh, Will Chamberlain. That's five of the guys on the team are from the Philly area. So, yeah, you, you really wouldn't see anything like that again uh, for an NBA champion. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to focus too much on Wilt because obviously Wilt, um, we've done other things on Wilt and he's written, been written about a lot, but it, obviously he is the uh, key player on this team, you know, winning uh, another MVP award. Um, he set a record for shooting from the field that season, 68%, and um, also um, was uh, led the team in assists for uh, three straight seasons, including the the 67 season. Um Obviously, he transitioned from score to. I mean, he was still an incredible score, like twenty four points, twenty four rebounds. But how did he sort of adjust his game when he entered? You know, when he came to the team in the middle of sixty five season, and uh, you know, and, and this team emerged. You know, having an incredible year in sixty seven. How did he kind of, you know, change the way that he did things and you know adjust to the rest of the team? Yeah, so well, well, to answer that question, I think we should go back a few years, and this is this is again why the team is so fascinating because you have all these different like threads coming together. Because mm-hmm. uh, back when Wilt was with the San Francisco Warriors, uh, Alex Hannum coached that team, um, and there are articles written. You can go find them, like on Sports Illustrated and other like local papers and stuff. And they talk about like the, the new Wilt Chamberlain because Alex Hannum in the 1964 season told Wilt. Like, we need you to, yes, you can still go out and score 30 points a game, but for us to be our best, we need you to be more of a passer. Um, so that started way back in 64. And uh, the San Francisco Warriors got to the NBA Finals that year uh, behind Wilt and uh, Alex Hannell. And uh, that was like Wilt's first, you know, quote-unquote low-scoring season. I think he may have, might have averaged like 35 points that year, but he also averaged five assists that season. Uh, so when he got traded to Philly, cause like the 65 season, that one was kind of a lost year. Cause, uh, he had like the pancreatitis and stuff and there was just a bad situation went down in San Francisco. Uh, but he got traded to the Sixers midway through that year. Uh, so that was really just like an adjustment, even though they took the Celtics to like the seventh game in the finals, East finals that season, uh, the Sixers. Um, but yeah, like, uh, Hannah was a really good coach for him. Cause when he got to Philly, uh, Dolph Shays was the coach and, Everybody loved Dolph Shays personally, but everybody also acknowledged that he just wasn't the best coach. Um, and uh, it seems like the Philadelphia players, the Sixers players, really thought that they had the best team in the NBA starting in 66, maybe 65, but definitely 66. And they felt that the key to them winning in 67 was getting Alex Handelman as the coach because Alex you know, went back to Wilt and really got Wilt um, – don't want to say under control, so like gives off the wrong connotation, but he was able to like persuade Will to play that style again that he did back in '64, and uh, you see the result. Like Will averages 24 and 24 and eight assists a game, uh, and the fellas that I was talking to, they said like you know they considered themselves like a kind of like a wheel where Will's at the center of the wheel, but all the guys come off as spokes, so Will kind of sits in the post, and all these guys are cutting and weaving and setting screens off the ball. And they all just raved about Wilt's, uh, his acumen for passing the ball. Uh, he would just notice the cutter. He would drop the bounce pass or the, you know, the overhead pass. Um, so, yeah, that was just that – was, I think that's Alex, Alex Hannum's doing. Like, yes, Wilt had that talent, but Alex Hannum was able to convince him that if you play this way, we're definitely going to be able to win a championship. And it, it worked out that season. Um, yeah, so it was, was kind of like a repeat of the 64 season, but they just had a better team than they did in 64. So they were able to really – uh, really push it all the way to the max and just really win, you know, 68 games that year and dethrone the Celtics and win the title. So this team had several other players who were among the best of their time, but are, are not, you know, a little bit forgotten in yeah. you know, the the course of history. Um, of course, Hal Greer, who is a uh, was on the list of top 50 players of all time and was probably you know the, the third or fourth best guard uh, during that time, but you know, happened to be behind Jerry West and Oscar Robertson during that time. 
uh, Billy Cunningham, who was, uh, I believe, in his, his uh, second year um, yeah. in the league in 67, would later be an ABA MVP and a multi-time All-Star and, you know, was one of the most versatile forwards at his time. And uh, really overlooked, uh, even more so, Chet Walker, I think, who was, you know, a uh, a, a, a very uh, great small forward um, and was an all-star of his time and would later go on to the Bulls and have some great seasons there. But those three guys, absolutely among the peak players of um, their era, but, uh, you know, like I said, a little bit more forgotten today. Let's, let's start with Hal Greer, because... Uh, he had been with the uh, franchise since '59, of course, when they were with the Nationals, and and really helped you know carry the team during the transition between you know the Dolph Shays years and before mm-hmm. Chet Walker emerged, and then um, and then of course what comes along in '65. Uh, you know what can you say about uh, you know, how Greer, his importance, and how he played? Yeah, uh, and just real quick before I get to Greer, like also just you mentioned some of those guys. Uh, that's another reason why I really love this team. It's just that. He had a variety of guys in different stages of their careers. So he had, you know, uh, Cunningham and Matt Gukas and Melchioni, who are their first or second year. So they're really, really young guys. And then you had, you know, Wilt and Hal Greer and uh, Chet Walker to a degree. Well, eh, Chet's a little younger, but uh, you really had Wilt and Hal at the prime of their career, like the absolute peak. They're both 30 years old that year. Uh, then you had guys like Chet and Luke Jackson that are kind of on the rise and haven't yet reached their peak, but they're almost there. And then he had like the veterans like Dave Gamby and Larry Costello. Uh, so it's just a really like a perfect range, too, of ages of other guys on the team. Uh, so Hal Greer, as I just mentioned, uh, he was at the prime of his career. Um, act, exactly 30 years old, as you mentioned, had carried the franchise uh, really since, you know, the early 60s, once Dolph Shea started to fade. Um, but the thing that got me when I was talking to the fellas and, and Hal was there and he's a he's kind of a, a shy guy, uh, doesn't really you know, go out of his way to talk about himself. But the other guys there, uh, Billy Cunningham, uh, he mentioned that the thing with Hal Greer is that he set some of the hardest and most effective screens that you'll ever see from a guard. And I think that kind of exemplified Hal Greer's career. But like he does something so mundane and workmanlike really well that no one really cares about it unless you're actually playing on the court with him. Like, you know, 50 years later, who's going to be sitting out here, you know, as a fan raving like, oh, my God, how Greer said like the hardest picks off the ball like that you could ever imagine. But in an actual basketball game, that means something, because if he sets that hard screen, either you're going to get open or the defense is going to overcompensate trying to fight through the screen. And all of a sudden, how Greer's open and then Will Chamberlain's in the post throwing these passes. And so the guy said how was just getting people open with those off ball screens or getting himself open when he would roll off the screen. Uh, so that kind of stuff really stuck with me. And they also talked about his defense. Uh, they called him like, you know, the bulldog. So he was always hounding the other guys or the other team's uh, uh, best guard as well on defense. Uh, so, he, so he was a very, very good point. Or excuse me, very good shooting guard and kind of played point guard. He was just a guard. He played point and shooting guard. Uh, just a great guard during that period. He gets overlooked. Uh, made the all-star team every year, I think from 1960 to 71. So just a Really fantastic guard that really gets overlooked, unfortunately. Yeah, he was a seven-time um, All-NBA second team, seven years in a row. Yeah. Uh, also was, when he retired, was the fifth leading scorer in NBA history and had played the most games in NBA history. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just just durable. Um, I don't think he missed a lot of games until his final season. I think it's when he finally missed a decent chunk of time. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, they talked about how he played with the, his bad thigh, and sure enough, you look at all these photos of Hal Greer, he always has this big bandage wrapped around his thigh. Right, yeah. Uh, every photo I've seen of him, he has this, just this big wrap, big bandage, big brace around his thigh. Uh-huh. Um, how did he, like, one thing that's you know been written about is that he sort of had to, you know, he was, he was the man there before Wilt came along, or, you know, certainly the most yeah. important player. How did, you know, he have to sort of accept being in the, in the background or the second fiddle once Wilt came along? Well, you know, uh, that that topic didn't come up uh, during my conversation with the guys, but uh, re- reading Wayne Lynch's book, um, and I've also done a podcast with Wayne Lynch, uh, who wrote a book about the the, the team, mm-hmm. uh, so that's definitely a good listen as well. Yeah. Uh, but, but, yeah, like, based on Wayne's book, it seemed like, you know, it's like a, it was nothing personal with Wilt, obviously between uh, Hal Greer and Wilt, but Hal was just like, you know, yeah, he was the guy, the main scorer on the team for like half a decade, then all of a sudden Will Chamberlain drops in. Like, that's a hard adjustment for anybody. Uh, and, and like, it, everybody knew Wilt's the best player on the team, if not the best player in the league. So, of course, you're going to have to kind of adjust yourself to Wilt. 
but Hal, again, his demeanor, uh, obviously everybody has an ego, especially if you know, you're a seven-time All-NBA second-team person. You have an ego, but um, any other type of player, I think that might have led to a bigger problem. But Hal, as I said, was such a kind of a low-key guy where he was able to successfully kind of subsume himself and mesh his talent with Will Chamberlain. And he recognized that, yeah, Wilt is a better player, so I am going to have to make a bigger adjustment than he is uh, vis-a-vis myself. Um, and it really worked out well once Alex Hannum got in there. And that's why Hannum was so important was that he he was able to kind of, you know, overrule Wilt. So that was like a personality that could deal with Will Chamberlain. Whereas Dahl Shays, uh, Will Chamberlain didn't have any respect for him. You read Wilt's biography. Uh, Wilt just didn't respect Dahl Shays as a coach, but he did respect Alex Hannum. So Hannum was able to come in and really uh, if Wilt kind of got out of line, Hannum was able to steer him right back to where he should be. And I would kind of keep the other players in line because they knew Hannah was going to try to keep Wilt in line. So that really helped out as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was there anything about Hannah? I mean, he'd obviously won the championship in 58 with the Hawks. And he had this – he'd been a former Marine, I believe, and, you know, was respected as, you know, for his toughness. And and was it, you know, just a personality thing or a strategic thing? Or what, what, you know, led to just him having the respect of the the players where, you know, Shays wasn't able to have that for the most part? Uh, It's – yeah, it was just the fact that, yeah, I think that military experience helped out Hannum because all his players called him Sarge. I mean, they still do, especially Wally Jones. Uh, when Wally Jones started talking about Hannum, he's like, yeah, then Sarge should do this. And like they still call him Sarge, uh, you know, 50 years later. Uh, but they were just talking about how Hannum just had these good people skills. Um, and he knew when to be firm, when to be tough, but also when to relax. Um, and Hannum played a lot of professional basketball, but he was never the best player by any means on his team. So... That's that's like one of the old adages. Like the the great players usually don't make great coaches, but the kind of guys that were bench players, they become the great coaches because they kind of see how the stars get treated, but also they know how the regular guy at the end of the bench kind of feels. And they they can kind of make sure they don't feel left out in these kind of situations. So uh, it was tactical. You know, again, Hannibal was about a big uh, fan of sharing the basketball, but it was also the personal dealings where he would make sure that guys were all held accountable for what they did and. Um, Wally, uh, when I was talking to him, he mentioned how Alex Hanno made sure that Wilt spent time in the city during the season because Wilt would often live in New York City, would commute to Philadelphia to play in some games. But Alex Hanno said, Wilt, if you're going to be on the team, like be a part of the team, you got to be in Philly uh, for a significant amount of the season. So when Hanno set his foot down on that, that showed the rest of the guys on the team that, yeah, he's serious. He's trying to build a coherent squad here and no one's exempt from uh the toughness uh when it's needed and that included will so yeah i think that was a really important example that had to be set uh, so chet walker um as we mentioned one of the you know great small forwards of the uh, mm-hmm. time uh and also a guy that you know uh you he had, was good for clutch shooting he really was a guy who could you could get the ball who could um you know get to the basket or you know make the shot he was very much a uh, a player who in crunch time you could trust to uh you know make the make the right play yeah, yeah, I mean, so my disinclination for Kobe Bryant is well known. But one of the good things about Kobe Bryant is that when you get in a tough spot, the offense breaks down, Kobe could get a shot up. Chet Walker had kind of the same ability. Like, you try to work the screens, you try to work all this, but, you know, you don't succeed every time. A defense can shut you down, so when it, when it gets time to it, it's like, well— we got to get some shot up, give the ball to Chet. Chet's going to work something out. And uh, Chet just had these shoulders. Like uh, I've called them like the best shoulders in basketball history where he could have these pump fakes, the way his shoulders moved would kind of uh, throw the defender off. But also he could like um, – when he would drive into the paint, he would just like maneuver his shoulder. That would just like work him around somebody because Chet was not fast by any means. It's kind of like Paul Pierce where um, – he knew the right steps to take, uh, the right shoulder fakes to make, the right moves to like, you know, work somebody off of him using his shoulder. And then he can get up any kind of shot once he got in that like, you know, 15 foot range. I uh, had no problem whatsoever. Um, so great player. And if, you know, you got him with an off ball screen, he would catch it and shoot it and he could make the jump shot. But you have an offense broke down. You needed a clutch shot. Chet Walker was there to make it make it happen. And um and he shot 49% that season, too. So it's not like he's shooting a low percentage. He was shooting a very high percentage as well. And I uh, averaged about 20 points that year. So, yeah, very great offensive player. Um, yeah, fantastic small forward. Unfortunately, kind of forgotten these days, but uh, just fantastic. 
Yeah, running some, you know, looking at some of the players from, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, uh, you know, just doing kind of research on guys. I mean, he's really a guy who, you know, the numbers really pop out as a um, like a really tremendous player. I mean, some of those years with the Bulls in the um, early 70s, I mean, he's, he's you know, kind of near the top of the league in some of the um, advanced stats. And, you know, again, not a obviously he was part of some really good teams in Philly mm-hmm. and Chicago, but, um, you know, and, and, and you know, was all-star appearances but for whatever reason um you maybe because his his career ended a little bit prematurely with a dispute with you know bulls management (laughs) yeah (laughs) didn't quite get the you know the the after career you know some of that stuff that um other guys did although he eventually did get into the uh, hall of fame yeah and the thing with chet i wrote an article for yahoo back when he got inducted to the hall of fame and when i was just looking over his, his career he seemed to be getting better as he was getting older, too, which is the craziest thing, because like uh, he retired when he was 35. So like at that time, that's not you know, that's not a that's a pretty good age to reach back in the mid 70s. Like at 35, you're retired. He had a good career. But Chet had a couple seasons left in him, at least. Uh, he was up maybe scoring still like 18, 19 points a game his last year and might have shot close to a career high in field goal percentage. So he was by no means done. Uh in terms of his talent, but it was just a principle of the matter. Like you read his autobiography. Uh, <laughs> this is funny. When I told Chet uh, before the interviews, I was like, Chet, like, you know, obviously, like, it's great to meet you. Like, you, it's always great to meet like a seven time all star Hall of Famer. And when I told him I read his autobiography, like he's, he's kind of like looked at me like, really? You read it? I was like, yeah, I read it. Like, it's like it was a great book. I enjoyed it. So he got a big smile on his face. Uh, but you read his autobiography and you realize that this is a man that was you know, born in Mississippi, his family were sharecroppers, and um, he he grew up with that, you know, just that that awful racism of the Jim Crow South. And when the owner of the Bulls came to him and basically told him, like, your property of the Bulls, Chet was not having that. So that's why he quit. He's like, I don't care how much money somebody's going to offer me. Like, you can't call me your property and expect me to sit here and, you know, take money for it. So that's why he quit the NBA. It wasn't for lack of skill. Uh, it was his his, you know, his personal principles. Like he decided, like, I've made enough money. I don't have to sit here and be somebody's property. Uh, even though I might be, quote unquote, a free man, I don't have to be somebody's property in a sport. So that's why he quit. Um, and so that demeanor and that attitude clearly shone through when I was talking to him uh, and all the other guys on the team. Everybody on that team had a keen sense of like uh, like human dignity and personal worth. Um, every man up and down their roster, which I think is why they were such a good team. Um uh, they were all talking about how, you know, it's not just about playing on the basketball court, but like we, we were friends off the court. Uh, we did, you know, charity work together, just like back in the late 60s. They would do charity work together. They would go out to the community together and help out people. Uh, so that's something that really shone through. Uh, you saw the Chet later in his career, but it was there right in the late 60s uh, when they were doing that work as a team, even at that point. So um, Billy Cunningham, another one of the you know tremendous players on this team, uh, as we mentioned, would be a future ABA um, MVP, and at, at this point was in his second year was a sixth man, but already had you know had the reputation of being you know an incredible versatile forward, being able to you know kind of do a little bit of everything, whether you know pass or shoot or rebound. Mm-hmm. Or, and that kind of thing, you know, what was sort of the element that he brought to the team? Uh, he, he brought this, as you mentioned, he brought the versatility and that scoring punch off the bench. Um, I forget who it was, but one of the guys said, like, you know, Billy was like their, like, they, that's like their answer for John Havlicek. Like, he was going to be their sixth man to come off and just give them the points when they needed it off the bench. And um, quick player, you know, got his hands in the passing lanes. Um and also, uh, again, one of those guys who helped glue the team together in terms of personality. Um, like he, when I started off my interview with all the guys, I asked him, what's it like to be together, you know, all together in the same spot for the first time? I think since like 1982 was the last time they were all together in one spot. And they kind of, you know, say like, oh, it feels great and kind of just generality stuff. But then Billy just like sharp, just like cut through all that was like, when I think of like being with this team, I think of being with Chet in Memphis, Tennessee, in like 19, maybe it's like 66 or 67. They're playing like an exhibition game. He said that this restaurant would serve him because he was white, but wouldn't serve Chet Walker because he was black. And you can look at Billy Cunningham's face and see that he was still pissed off about that like 50 years later. And 
again, I think that showed what made that team so special. It was like Billy on the court glued the team together because he was able to score, able to pass, able to, you know, knife down the lane and get these rebounds and get these layups. But also that, you know, he was 50 years later still pissed off and still sticking up for his teammate when something off the court had happened. Um, And he was a big, big guy, you know, doing the charity work in the city as well. So um, with this team, I'm going to keep stressing it probably all throughout throughout this podcast, but uh, it wasn't just the on-court stuff. It's how they interacted off the court. They really showed you how much of a team that they were. Um, Yeah, Cunningham, blue guy, on and off the court, all all the way around. Uh, That's what made him really special for the team. And um, Luke Jackson, at this point, you know, he was um, he had switched to power forward once Wilt came along, mm-hmm. and he was a great um, outside shooter for a big man, and he was just a really you know massively built guy, uh, great rebounder, yeah. uh, you know really um, you know he and Wilt you know, in- incredibly uh, physically a tough uh, combination. Yeah, like uh, Alex Hannum called him the most powerful front court in NBA history, like the tandem of Luke and Will Chamberlain. Uh, and everybody called him Big Luke. Like it wasn't just Luke, it was Big Luke. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just huge guy. Uh, Could have played center, but it did play center, but got pushed to power for it when they traded for Will Chamberlain. And uh, everybody said no one sacrificed more than Luke Jackson uh, for that team because he should have been playing center, but he moved to the side to let Will play center. And as you mentioned, he had that outside shot, so he could be the power forward taking up, you know, that 15 to 8 foot jump shot to give Wilt some room. But also he mixed it up down low. Uh, He was a fierce, fierce rebounder and great defender. Uh, uh, So, yeah, great, great guy. You look at his field goal percentage. It wasn't that high, but you got to remember, you know, he got pushed out. So he had to take more of these outside shots. So that might be why his field goal percentage is low, but uh, lower for a power forward. But. Uh, that that's the kind of shots that were needed to make the offense work. If you're going to have Will Chamberlain down on the post, uh, so Luke definitely sacrificed. Uh, was an All Star his rookie season. Never made an All Star team again, but that's because he sacrificed his game to allow Will Chamberlain to come in and play the center spot. Uh, so everybody had high praise for Luke Jackson in terms of his sacrifice and uh, his team play. And was a guy, you know, um, he he probably would have been a. Um, I think he had a, a, a fairly significant knee injury, or you know, when he was relatively young, a few years after this, so didn't yeah, really yeah. have the longevity, longevity that you know maybe he'd be um, a little bit more, you know, would have been a um, a little bit better remembered if he had had just you know a few more years. Yeah, he had a knee and also I think Achilles injury. So mm-hmm. that was yeah, I think it was in uh, 1969. I think is when he had those injuries. So that obviously. Yeah, that cuts your career short. He played a couple seasons after after that, but yeah, they, he was nowhere near what he was before it, unfortunately. So, uh, bringing uh, the outside shooting to the team was um, Wally Jones, and uh, this was really the peak of uh, his career in terms of um, you know being able to contribute in all different areas. And um, uh, what can you tell me about uh, Wally Jones? Wally, uh, this is a you'll hear this. Uh, Wally and also Dave Gamby once we get to him. Uh, but Wally really credited Alex Hannum with giving him that really big season in 67. Because um, Wally had played with the Baltimore Bullets for a little bit and then obviously got traded uh, to the Sixers, so he played there a couple years. But then when Hannum comes in, uh, Wally said that Hannum instilled in him the confidence to go out there and be the quarterback for the team. Uh, you don't see it in his assist numbers. He averaged maybe about three and a half assists a game, so didn't get big assist numbers, but he said he felt like he was the quarterback of the team in terms of bringing the ball up court. And also, he said, more importantly, on defense, um, also with how Greer just being out there hounding the other team's guards and pressing them really hard and kind of whipping the rest of the team into the, the defensive fervor when they needed it. And, um, yeah, he was a, also a streak shooter. Like, when he got hot, he got hot. Um, and that confidence he said that he got from Alex Hannum. Like, he said, when Hannum, like, would just gave him the green light, like, to shoot Wally like when it, you know if it ain't going for you it's okay we know that once you get hot you will like you you'll just be on fire on fuego uh this day ain't gonna be no ain't gonna be no stopping them and sure enough um the most famous example I think was the the game five against the Celtics in the playoffs where I think he made 11 to 12 shots in the third quarter like score like you know 23 24 points uh just lit the Celtics up in that in that fourth uh third quarter in that game five um and again, like I'm just going to keep referencing the interview because, like, you know, there's nothing better than talking to the guys themselves. But um, 
all the players on the team were still just like, oh, and then Wally got hot in that one game. Remember that? And they were like pointing at Wally, like, whoo, yeah, he lit the Celtics up. Like, they still think back on that. Like, that was when they knew they had the Celtics killed was when Wally just absolutely lit them up. And they, we got footage of it. Um, we have it on the Sixers website. And you can see Wally just going behind the back, doing spin moves and just taking these jackknife jump shots. Um just unbelievable, unorthodox shooting form. But when it got hot, it got hot. And uh, yeah, he just he could light up a team. Unbelievable. Uh, so Larry Costello, he was uh, 35 at the point, uh, oldest player on the team. And he yeah. had uh, played with the Warriors at the beginning of his career when, he, when they were in Philly. And, yeah, a long time ago. And then yeah. went, went to the Nationals and played most of his uh, career there. He actually uh, spent a year away from the NBA. Um, I believe he played in the Eastern League and yep. then came back to the 76ers uh, for the season. Yeah. So, yeah, this again, it's like the guy, like the Sage veteran and um Wally, Matt Gukas, uh, Mel Keone, some of the younger guys in the team, they all had very high praise for Larry Costello because they said Larry was the guy that showed them like the professionalism that it took uh, to succeed in the NBA. And uh, Larry, unfortunately, had a knee injury uh, midway through that season. And uh, he came back in time for the playoffs, but then hurt his knee again, I think, in the first or second playoff game. Uh, so unfortunately, he didn't wasn't able to contribute as much as he could on the court uh, for the entire season. But uh, again, like his professional demeanor, uh, he showed the younger guys, you know, what it meant to be a professional in the league and how to work hard and train hard. Um, and I think that was his last year in the NBA, uh, 67. He might've played a little bit in 68, but I think 67 was Costello's last season. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, he was an all-star too. I think he may have played in six all-star games. So he was definitely a hell of a player before he was 35 years old and you know, had the knee injuries. But, um, uh, I guess his claim to fame is being like the last great set shooter in, in the NBA. <laughs> like the last two-hand set shot guy. But right. uh, great guard, though. You know, you don't make five or six all-star teams for nothing. Um, he, he was a great guard and uh, really good, kind of a hard ass, but a really good guy showing the guy's uh, professionalism at that time. Yeah, and, and he'd be one of the guys on this team who would end up having a very good coaching career. Yeah, a lot, a lot of coaches on this team. <laughs> yeah, he coached the uh, Bucks to the uh, championship in uh, 71 with Kareem, obviously, and Oscar Robertson. And I, I remember doing some research. I know that you know, he was kind of one of the first um, – coaches uh, that staff was one of the first coaches to really have um you know a pretty expansive scouting and you know like a real deep you know kind of modern playbook and you know, really um you know was more advanced than kind of the nba coaching had been in the uh, 60s mm-hmm. yeah dude. yeah uh, so you know, some of the other key players, of course, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Dave Gamby, who was uh, could be a, a little bit of an enforcer, although he also, you know, provided some pretty good scoring and was an excellent free throw shooter. Um, uh, what can you tell us about uh, Dave Gamby? Dave Gamby is my favorite person uh, on this team because uh, before I interviewed all the guys, I had like the distinct honor and pleasure of having like just a. They had a, a dinner for the guys just to get them all together and stuff. They invited me to the dinner just so I can get to know them before I did the official interview. And thank God I got stuck at Dave Gamby's table because Dave Gamby is like the funniest uh, dude in the world. Uh, he's going to be 80 years old this year. Uh, but this man has so many funny stories to tell. It's just, just absolutely hilarious. Uh, like I, I wish I could repeat some of the things he said, but uh, this dude was crazy. Uh, it was hilarious. Um uh, like it's like I'm gonna look back the rest of my life and be like, thank God I got stuck at Dave Gamby's table because uh, this dude is just hilarious and funny. So I can't wait till we get his podcast up that I did with him, uh, just one on one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he he was like the enforcer on the team. So like, yeah, if you start roughing up people, Dave Gamby would go out there and be like, all right, that's enough of that nonsense. Uh, him and Luke Jackson were like the tough guys on the squad. Um, but as I kind of alluded to earlier, uh, Dave Gamby, when I talked to him one on one. Uh, he gave, again, credit to Alex Hannum back with the Syracuse Nationals uh, for giving him that opportunity to be an NBA player. Because um, Gamby started playing with the St. Louis Hawks, and he barely played for them. And then his also played for the Cincinnati Royals, but again, barely played for them. But when he moved on to the Syracuse Nationals, uh, Alex Hannum was the coach at that time for the Nationals. And this is like 1961, maybe. Um, and he said Alex Hannum's the guy that gave him the opportunity to play. And those were the best years of his career in the early 60s with the Nationals. Uh, he was the starting small forward on the team. Uh, I think he averaged up to 18 points one year. Uh, so he loved Dave Gamby because he's the guy that he had just that presence to understand that, you know, 
being a success in the NBA isn't just a matter of your talent. It's a matter of somebody seeing your talent and giving you the opportunity uh, to show your talent on the court. And uh, to this day, he was still just praising Alex Hannum for being the guy that had faith in him, showing like, you know, giving him an opportunity to prove himself where he could have said, eh, this guy failed in St. Louis. He failed in Cincinnati. He's not any good. I'm just going to bury him on the bench. He gave Gamby a chance and Gamby had some good years that early, early 60s. Uh, but then I think he hurt his knee in uh, like maybe 64 or 65. So by 67, unfortunately, Gamby wasn't as good as he was, but um, still still had still contributed, uh, still averaged about seven points. As you said, a great free throw shooter. Uh, and again, one of those veteran presence guys who can show the younger fellas, you know, how to work hard, uh, great team player. And again, the enforcer. So if you mess with people, Dave Gamby is going to come out there and make sure that nonsense is going to stop. Um, but yeah, just just a great guy. Uh, absolute uh, pleasure to ever to talk to him. Uh, can't say enough about it. I, I love the dude. He's fantastic. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you got a chance to at uh, Dave Gamby's table. Uh, I man, God, if ever like that's the takeaway from this podcast. If you get a chance to have dinner with Dave Gamby, don't miss it. Uh, right. The dude is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Um, so Matt Gukas, he was a rookie at this uh, point, and uh, his dad had actually played on the uh, 47 Philadelphia Warriors who'd won the championships. He'd won championship mm-hmm. in the city. He was from there, he, and he and his dad were the, uh, the, the not the first father-son duo in NBA history and also, of course, the first father-son duo to win championships. So um, what can yeah. you t- tell us about him? Yeah, Matty, I, I forgot. Yeah, I did. I also did an interview with Matt Gukas. So we have a podcast with him up, too. Uh, so you can hear more about him talking about uh, his his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he, he's Matty's a great person. I, I, I also enjoy Matt a lot because when I asked him, you know, what was your what was the highlight of your season? And he just said. It was all just a blur. He's like, I was a rookie. I'm sitting here looking at Will Chamberlain and Hal Greer. Like, I'm just a rookie. Like, I was just there for the ride. And uh, I, I tried to press him. Be like, no, but really, like, what was your high point? He's like, I didn't have any high points. Like, I was just riding these other guys' coattails. Like, he, he's just a guy that just clearly appreciated the like the just the the, the great team he fell into. Uh, and he did have a pretty lengthy career. He played like ten seasons in the NBA. Uh, uh, but he noticed, or he noted, just like you know. He, he, he kind of took for granted or just didn't appreciate because he, he said like he was just too young. Like he didn't really appreciate what it meant to be on a team that won 68 games and won the NBA title because he was a rookie. So like, what do you know? If like, that's your first year in the NBA, you're like, well, it's always going to be this easy. Uh, but he quickly realized like, no, it's not going to be that easy. Um, but then he also said that he realized how serious it was, I guess you can say. When he saw how like happy Hal Greer and Larry Costello were when they won the championship, because those guys had been in the league for so long, and that's when he kind of dawned on them that yeah, this is a really big deal, and it actually is not as easy as it might have seemed, because these are guys that have been in the league you know ten, twelve years, and they finally got their championship. Um, so yeah, it was it was great to talk to Matt Gukas because he had like kind of that you know that fresh face, the doughboy look at things like well, it's always going to be this easy, but then he looks, he's like oh wait, the grizzled veterans are like. Finally, we got over this goddamn hill. We finally beat the Celtics. We finally got this championship. Uh, so it's good to have his perspective from that, that vantage point because um, he's kind of right. He didn't play a whole lot. He played like 10 minutes a game, but uh, it was great just to have his insight, uh, the vantage point of looking at the veterans and how much it meant to them to win the championship. Yeah. And, and one thing that's notable about this team is that even you know the guys who were on the deep bench were really talented would go on to you know yeah. very good uh, NBA careers. Um, Bill Melchioni, who um, you know was was a backup who played you know limited minutes on this team as a, as a point guard, but then would later go on to the Nets and be a a, a three time All Star and win two championships along with the Julius Irving yeah. with the Nets. Um, what, what can you tell us about him? Yeah, uh, Milk, uh, he was also at the table, too, with Dave Gamby. So I also had the pleasure of having dinner with Bill Melchioni. Uh, and both their wives were at the table, so it was hilarious to hear their wives like, tell NBA stories as well because they were on the road with the team sometimes. And it's, it's just interesting to get the vantage point of being the wife of an NBA player from the 60s. Like, they, they had stories of their own to tell, so that was just fantastic to hear them talk as well. Uh, but, but, yeah, Melchioni, uh, yeah, did, did get a lot of opportunity, obviously, as a rookie. Uh, and the funny thing with him was – he got called up for the National Guard during the playoffs. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he actually missed out on the, the championship, uh, like actually being there for the championship because he was like the, at the National Guard base. Oh, wow. I think in, uh, Yeah, I think in New Jersey. So uh, he got kind of screwed out of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, Mel was hilarious about it. He's like, I played like 70 games for the team during the regular season. Then I get called up for the National Guard. 
And that's when they got in Bob Weiss to take his place for the playoffs. He's like, I'm looking at the championship photo, and Bob Weiss, who barely played for the team, he's sitting there grinning with Will Chamberlain, celebrating the championship. Now I played more time than he did. I'm stuck in this damn Army base. So it was hilarious to hear Bill Melchiotti talk about that. But uh, now he, he was also appreciative. Like he, he was also a rookie, but he grew up in Philadelphia, and he was a teammate of Wally Jones at uh, Villanova. So those two went back. And uh, Wally had a great nickname for Melchioni. He called him Cyclops because he has such a good jump shot. He's like, Cyclops, he sees everything. He has that jump shot. It's going to be money. Uh, but he called him Cyclops. Uh, but yeah, great guard. And that, that just spoke to the, the depth of the team where he had this guy who would be a three-time all-star in the ABA, uh, led the ABA in assists a couple seasons. Uh, and actually has the all-time record for assists per game uh, for an ABA season at Bill Melchioni. And he's buried at the back of the bench on this team. Mm-hmm. So that really spoke to just how deep uh, this squad was and why it is really one of the best teams uh, that ever played in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then Bob Weiss, who, who, as you mentioned, barely played on the uh, team. Um, I, you know, he, of course, would become later you know, pretty famous as a uh, coach in the uh, uh, late 90s, I think, he, into the 2000s as well. And um, I, I don't know if he was part of the, uh, of the dinner as well, but is there anything that stands out about him? Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, Bob, because he's still an assistant coach in the NBA. Uh, so Bob wasn't there uh, for the, the little get-together, I guess you can call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he played in uh, the Eastern Basketball League most of that time. So that's why he got called up for a few games, because he was already around in the area. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, uh, I think starting in 69, I think he got taken in one of the expansion drafts. So I think that's when he went to Seattle, I believe it was, uh, for that season. Uh, but again, he became a, a pretty good point guard uh, during the early and mid seventies uh, for the Sonics, the Bulls, and uh, the Buffalo Braves. So, again, this is a guy that was, you know, barely in the NBA, not even at the end of the bench, but barely in the NBA. But when he finally got an opportunity, uh, he was a starting quality point guard. But then, like you know, first point guard off the bench uh, for the Sonics, the Bulls, and uh, the Braves uh, for the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think again, that speaks to kind of the depth. Uh, that every team in the NBA had at that time because you only had you know eight or nine teams, uh, so yeah, every every team was was chock full of talent, and there was room to have more teams in the league to give these guys a chance to to show what they can do. Yeah, uh, so that's why it's yeah it's ridiculous that you look at the Sixers team and they got like seven guys that made an All Star team at some point in their career, which is just absurd to think about. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really is in a lot of ways the first super team in a sense, and that sounds a little bit silly to say. With, of course, you know the uh, the Celtics making, you know, winning um, eight straight championships and all the Hall of Famers that they had. But the thing that's different about this team is a lot of their players also excelled in other situations. Um, where you know the yeah. Celtics, for the most part, you know they 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 would bring you know they brought in some um, guys um, you know who were who were really good on other teams. You know, they bring in some reclamation projects you know Bailey Howell guys like that but you know for the most part these guys you know were were superstars in other situations you know especially the you know top um four or five guys and um whereas with the Celtics that you know they they largely all you know succeeded exclusively together yeah yeah like you look at these people every single player on the team at some point in their career was a legit NBA starter uh they might have at, at this specific moment in 1967, they might have been at the end of their career like Costello at the very beginning of the career, like uh, Matt Gukas or Melchioni. Uh, but at some point in their career, these guys, every single one of them was a legit starter on the NBA or ABA team. And then, as I just mentioned, you know, seven of them made an all star team. Uh, four of them are in the Hall of Fame. Um, like, it, it's just silly to think about, like you could have that kind of talent on one team and. This is where they're like a transitional team because like they all weren't drafted by the Sixers. So you're kind of getting away from that old model, like with the Celtics, where you get all your talent straight through the draft. Or you might have a couple of uh, like waiver wire claims, like, you know, like Don Nelson or somebody like that that you bring in. But, you know, this team drafted some of these guys, but also traded for some of these guys. Um, Like they were really one of the first modern NBA teams. And then the next season, the ABA gets founded. So like that really begins like you know the the, the time of, like you know player movements. So this was yeah really a transition team that shows like kind of pointed the way toward the future of like how NBA teams would be built uh, during the seventies and early eighties. 
Uh, yeah, and, and I wonder if, you know, they, they came around at the wrong time, in a sense, to, you know, have become a dynasty. Um, you know, because as you mentioned, the ABA comes along, there's rapid expansion over, you know, the two teams are added in 68 yeah. and a bunch are added in 70 and 71. Um, and, um, you know, Wilton and Greer were 30, so they were, you know, they're at their prime and, and getting to, you know, older, but a lot of the other best players were, you know, in their mid to early twenties. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, they, Cunning- so- I mean, yeah, Cunningham's just getting started. He was only 23. So right. he, he's just getting started. He, he was going to get a whole lot better. So, yeah. Yeah. And even after Wilt left, they were a strong team, you know, in, in the next season, still, you know, a, 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 you know, maybe not quite a championship contender, but just below that. And, um, you know, they, they really had a chance to have, you know, a long-term team, but, um, and, and as you mentioned, as you, as you've written, likely would have been, uh, you would have repeated in 68 if, if Billy Cunningham had not been injured in the uh, postseason. Yeah. Like down. Yeah, and you can still see the guys like, uh, 1966. Well, obviously the, sorry. So let's take the long view here. Uh, 65, they lost in the seventh game to Boston. That's when Havlicek stole the ball. And <laughs> Chet Walker was still upset about it because the ball was being thrown to Chet. And Chet was like, man, I can still see John, uh, John Havlicek just jumping in there and getting the ball from me. Uh, so it's hilarious, like, sitting right next to Chet Walker and seeing him just lament, you know, like, 52 years later, still having the ball stolen from him. Uh, but, you know, they kind of felt like, all right, 65, that was like a coin flip, whatever. But in 66, they had the best record in a regular season. And they felt like they kind of let that 66 playoff series get away from them. Like, Boston blasted them in the playoffs. And they felt like they really let themselves down. 67, they thought, we finally got it together. We had Hannum as our coach. We did what we should have done in 66. And then in 68, they all, every guy that was in that room uh, who was still on the team, because uh, unfortunately Dave Gamby, he was the first casualty, I guess you can say. Uh, he got taken by the San Diego Rockets in that expansion draft. So he wasn't there for 68. Uh, but in 68, the guys were still like, we knew we were still the best team in the NBA. They, were, they had the best record in the regular season. And they, to a man, thought that if Billy hadn't broken his wrists against the New York Knicks in the first round, they would have beat Boston in a, in a conference finals. They would have won the NBA finals. They had their second championship. And they think if they won that second title in 68, Wilt wouldn't have left and gone to L.A. in 69. And they thought that they would have had the next dynasty in the NBA. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard to argue with them on that, on that front. Because even without Cunningham, they had Boston down three games to one in the East finals. And you got to think if they had Cunningham healthy, they definitely would have beat Boston. They would have gone on to the finals and beat the Lakers in 68. And they would have had their back-to-back titles. And... It's kind of hard to break up a back-to-back NBA championship team. Um, yeah. You think Alex Alex Hannum would have stayed on as coach? Wilt would have stayed on for another year? Uh, they'd have gave it another run in, in '69, but uh, they'll, yeah. those are the breaks. Uh, although, although I think Wilt might be the one guy who would have left that situation for money. You had the confidence in himself to you yeah. know to, to to go to to do what he wanted to do. Over um, even though I, you know, I I know he enjoyed playing for the team, and it was more of a yeah. ownership situation as opposed to a team situation. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, you never know, but right, but I mean, you, you, you got to think if, if you just won back to back titles, it, it would make a difference, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it would have been, yeah, and maybe the ownership would have been a little bit more uh, bendable, I guess you could say, <laughs> on the issue right. of the money. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we will never know if only Cunningham had broken his wrists. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, were there any? You know, was there anything that they talked about as far as obviously, you know, beating the Celtics and ending that eight-game winning streak, or you know, beating the Warriors in the finals that you know stood out as memories that you know a- any of them sh- they talked about? Yeah, a question I asked them was, I tried to ask them about. I forget, I forget if I asked them this specific question, but I tried to get them to talk about you know each playoff series. But they all kept going back to Boston. Like, Boston was a team that they were just – that was a team they just wanted to beat the brains out of. Like, yeah, beating Cincinnati in the first round was like, okay, we, that, we just need to do that to get to Boston. Um, beating San Francisco in the finals, we just need to do that just to win the NBA championship. It seemed like beating Boston was the real goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, that was like legit, that's what we need to do. Um, and I tried to get, like, I literally, I asked the question about, like, all right, you, you guys beat Boston. Like, what was it like to play in the finals? And they kind of briefly talked about it, but then they just went right back to beating Boston. Like, they were just so happy to have beaten Boston. Like, that seemed to be the, that was the pinnacle of success. And they, they said it, like, that was, Boston was the team to beat. Like, they had won, you know, eight straight championships. They're like, beating Boston, that was the clear-cut goal. Um, and they said they got phone calls from other players in the league saying how happy they were that they beat the Boston Celtics. So 
everybody in the NBA is here was just happy that somebody finally dethroned the Boston Celtics. And like the NBA championship was in just like an afterthought almost uh, from that perspective. So it's kind of hilarious for like the NBA Finals is kind of like the letdown. Like we beat Boston, like all right, let's go win the championship. But finally, yeah, we beat Boston. That was the real goal. Right. Well, <laughs> after eight championships in a row, I I, I can see yeah. how that would certainly be the uh, case. But yeah, that's a. Uh, I mean, they they demolished them in that final game. I mean, one forty to one sixteen. You talked about the run that they you know they had in the uh, third quarter. You know, yeah. Wally Jones getting hot and um, all of that. But they absolutely just you know once the Celtics lost, you know they absolutely buried them. Of course, the Celtics you know came back and then ne- won the next two championships, which is an amazing accomplishment on their side but yeah it was really uh the way that it ended was quite something yeah oh yeah just i also haven't gone through every single instance of it but i can't think of an nba defending nba championship a champion that got blown out like that except maybe what about the lakers like in 2011 when the Mavericks busted them, that's like the only other time. That, that's, yeah. yeah, that's the time that I can think of. Yeah, I, I can't really necessarily think of an, another one. Uh, you know, maybe there was a final, a you know, a final game in the finals or whatever that got away from a team. But yeah, but, but for, for the most part, right? Yeah, like that. But like the Lakers were back to back champs in 20, 2011. But like the Celtics, like you're talking about the eight time defending champion. Yeah, nine out of the last ten championships, and the Sixers just like beat them by like thirty five points and just like just. And like it was the second half too. Like they were basically tied at halftime. But then in the second half, they just outscored them by like, you know, 35, 40 points. Like it's just ridiculous. You look at it. Like they were just pummeling them. Like, like Luke Jackson just slamming the ball, Wally Jones scoring like 20 straight points, uh, Will Chamberlain dunking on them, Hal Greer with the pull up jump shots. Like you just look at the footage. Like it's, it's just ridiculous. And the, and the crowd was just going crazy. Like they have this, this sign in the crowd saying like Boston is dead. The fans running through the, the stadium with that sign. Right. So, so the, the whole city was ready for it. Like, they were all fed up with it. Like, it wasn't just the Sixers, but it's going back to the Philadelphia Warriors days. They were sick of getting beat by Boston. Because uh, you remember back in the, the Warriors days, they lost in uh, 62 by, like, one or two points in Game 7 of the 62 East Finals. So they were ready to finally just, like, just bury Boston. So the whole city was happy about it. Yeah, and the former Nationals guys, I mean, Greer. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, they had they had battled Boston several times and, and had dealt with the defeat. So everyone involved in that game, you know, almost everyone involved in that game had, you know, battled Boston in the past and had, you know, never beat them. So it was certainly a... Um, you know, a great accomplishment. Had the axe to grind, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I don't know, any, anything else to wrap up that, uh, you know, stands out to you about uh, about this team or this experience? Um, I would say about the experience. I think we, the team, like, again, I, I hope it's come through what I've said about these guys. Like, every single one of them seem to be just really genuine. Um. Uh, just good, just good dudes. Uh, and I wish Luke Jackson had been there and Bob Weiss uh, to see them face to face. But and everybody had nothing but good stuff to say about Luke Jackson. Like they all love Luke too. Uh, so they were kind of sad that he wasn't there. Uh, but just the experience, like you know, being an NBA historian, basketball historian, uh, you know, looking at the the printed words and stuff. And I've met a few old timers here and there. But to have like a, a team. Like not just guys who play with each other here and there or played against each other here and there, but they have like a team uh, come together uh, just to be there in their presence and just to feel like the, the joy they had being together. Like it was just palatable. You could feel the, 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 uh, the joy they had being with each other. And the best moment was that Saturday night. I think it was like December 8th or 9th is when we had them together. Uh, but that night they had a reunion at the Sixers game and it was against Boston. So I pointed this out to the Sixers. I was like, one of your, your Saturday night games is against Boston. You probably want to get the guys back together for that game. They would probably love to come to the game against Boston. Um, but they had them out there for the half-court ceremony. And they like they named all the guys. They went up there and just waved their hands and stuff. And um, Larry Costello's daughters were also there. So that was good to have his daughters because pa- he passed away like 10 years ago. Uh, maybe even 15 years ago at this point. But uh, anyways, his daughters were there. But this literally like... I'm not an emotional guy, like outwardly, but like even I wanted to shed a tear and cry. When I saw these dudes at the center of the court, these dudes are like, you know, 75, 76, 80 years old. Center court, they all get in a huddle and like all set them in a huddle for like 10 seconds, do like a little talk to each other, chanting. And then they like basically do like, you know, one, two, three. They like, you know, pump their fists up in the air and then they just like walk off the court. That was like some straight up Disney shit. Like I want to shed some tears like. This 
Honestly, it's probably going to be the last time they're all going to be in the same spot together. So this is really cool to see them at half court being able to be together as a team on the basketball court one last time to have that little that one last little huddle. Um, so that's like my takeaway is, you know, just to see the human side of all the stuff we talk about with the the stats and the games won and all that. Just to see the human side, how those guys interacted with each other. Uh, it was just really fantastic. Well, I, uh, I, I'm glad for you that you were able to do it. it. It's awesome, and you do such great work, and you deserve that opportunity, and, and you've done some uh, really uh, great stuff for the project, and looking forward to seeing it continue. Yeah, uh, I hope so. Like, uh, I, hope, I, hey, I hope the Sixers get me back for many more projects. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's great to do work, uh, yeah. like professional credentials, uh, yeah. not just sitting at, at home. <laughs> yeah, they have a lot of great teams. They have a lot of great teams to honor, so yeah. They have, a, they have a great history, and I think that's – Hey, you know me. I'm all about the National Basketball League and the other kind of untold stories. And they're an NBL franchise. They started out in the NBL. So I'm here to tell them, like, you guys got a whole lot of stories to tell. They don't even know half of it. Uh, So I can't wait to help them do it. (laughs) All right, Curtis. Well, thank you uh, so much for uh, being on the show. And thanks, everyone, for checking us out. You can find us at the stepback at fansided.com. And you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search for over and back and you can find us on facebook or twitter at over and back nba so thanks for listening we're back again soon this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.